You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On today's episode of the Talking Taiwan podcast, I continue my conversation with Garrett Vanderwees about the Taiwan Communique, a publication that was started in 1980 during Taiwan's martial law era, a dark period in Taiwan's history in which there was extreme censorship and the people of Taiwan were denied their civil liberties. For these reasons, Garrett and his wife, Mei Chin, felt it was necessary to do something to shed light on the human rights violations that were happening in Taiwan. It's really remarkable to hear how they gathered all of the sensitive information for the Taiwan communique under these circumstances and in the pre-internet era. For over three decades, the Taiwan communique was one of the most in-depth English language resources on Taiwan. So I was really excited about doing this interview with Garrett because I wanted to acknowledge the lasting contribution of the Taiwan Communique and to let people know that it still remains available online to this day. It's a tremendous resource for anyone wanting to learn about the challenges Taiwan faced in going from dictatorship to democracy. Here's our interview. So actually, I'd like to shift gears now and, um, you know, look back on the context of what's happened i mean i think it's kind of interesting just even to think about like how the dpp has evolved over time um you know from the first time that um chen suipin the first dpp president was uh, elected and and the roots of the dpp could you comment a little bit on that yeah sure um so i think we could go back or should go back to 1979 when Taiwan was still under martial law. There were no opposition parties, uh, only um, a single party was in power, um, no press freedom. And at that point in time, a, a pretty small number of people got together and said, hey, we uh, want to move in the direction of uh, of democracy that seems to be a universal uh, human right. And they uh, decided that on the 10th of December 1979, they would organize a Human Rights Day celebration in Kaohsiung. And uh, they did. And this was organized by the Melitao magazine, one of the two magazines that had just been established in the summer of 1979, uh, both pushing for some more democracy and uh, human rights. The other uh, magazine being the 80s. Um, so Medito magazine organized this event and uh, about 10,000 people uh, came to Kaohsiung mm -hmm. to the event and they started to have speeches about human rights and democracy and so on and so forth, uh, including Liu Xiolian, who many years later would become vice president. But the police surrounded the crowd and uh, uh, started to throw tear gas, which of course created the big chaos. And uh, then three days later, the government uh, started to arrest leaders of the movement and say, hey, you are trying to overthrow the government, which was not the case at all whatsoever. Nobody had argued for overthrowing the government. Mm -hmm. And that uh, event, what we now refer to as the Kaohsiung uh, incident, 
resulted in a tremendous change um, in Taiwan itself and also change of the perception abroad of Taiwan. There were trials of the opposition leaders which were uh, followed very closely by international human rights organizations. And, but still, there was not very much attention in the uh, press, New York Times, Washington Post, hardly had anything about those trials. So that prompted us, uh, my wife and myself, uh, to start thinking about a publication that we later named Taiwan Communique, to bring to the attention of people uh, abroad in the US and Europe in particular, what was really happening in Taiwan. So we got to set up the publication in 1980 and started publishing the perspective from the uh, Taiwanese uh, side and not from the uh, from the Kuomintang side. So that went on and over those years, uh, new magazines popped up in Taiwan, the so-called Tangwai magazines, outside the party magazines, and those increasingly uh, started to argue for human rights, democracy, freedom, freedom of the press, and so on. And that really became a major movement, um, which eventually, in 1986, on uh, September 28th, resulted in the establishment of the Democratic Progressive Party. So the core people at that point in time were, very interestingly, the defendants and the defense lawyers of the Kaohsiung incident trials in the uh, early 1980s. So all of those people had formed a coalition, one could call it, uh, that together worked for human rights and democracy. So people like Chen Chui-bian, who became later president, uh, Su Zhenzang, who is right now the prime minister, and many others uh, were part of that Dangwai movement in the early 80s, and that evolved into the DPP. So the DPP had very much a root in the democracy movement, was really itself the embodiment of the democracy movement, and it gradually gained uh, influence and, and power in the legislative UN elections in the late 80s, early 90s, when the legislative UN uh, came to be elected by the people in Taiwan themselves only. Before that, they had had members that had been elected in 47, very old men and very old women who could hardly lift their hand, but who were still sitting there representing uh, their various provinces in China, which was pretty ludicrous, but that was the situation in the late 80s. So from the early uh, 1990s on, under President Li Tanghui, this uh, democratization in Taiwan solidified, it became more rooted in society, more people started to vote for the DPP. They tried to get more international recognition. The annual Taiwan into the UN campaign uh, was organized at that time. And that resulted in 19, sorry, in 2000, in the election of the first DPP president, President Chen Zhebian. 
which was almost a miracle, but it was made possible by the fact that the Kuomintang was divided between Lian San, who was the official Kuomintang candidate, and then Mr. James Song, who ran uh, on an independent ticket. And Mr. James Song is, of course, still around, but he didn't get very many votes this time around either. So Chen Shui-bian became president, but the problem was the legislative yuan was still very much under the control of the Kuomintang. So Chen Shui-bian was hardly able to do uh, anything because he was blocked at every turn by this Kuomintang legislature, uh, which basically voted against anything that he proposed, even arms sales uh, from the United States, which were agreed to by the United States, were blocked by the LY because they didn't want to give uh, Chen Shui-bian any credit. So in the end, he, uh, uh, he, he made it to the end of his term uh, in 2008, but it was not a very happy presidency because of the blocking by the Kuomintang on the one hand, and also his relations with the Bush administration went downhill for a number of reasons. Um, so that resulted in 2008 in the election of yet another Kuomintang president, Mr. Mainjo, and in the US, the Obama administration. So at that point, there was a feeling that Taiwan was kind of drifting closer to China because Mr. Mainjo was in favor of closer relations with China and had all these economic agreements uh, with China. But that bumped into resistance in 2014 from young people in Taiwan who felt that uh, Mr. Ma was going far too far and far too fast in the direction of China. The Sunflower Movement really meant that uh, Mr. Ma's movement in China's direction uh, couldn't go further and had to be uh, corrected in the other direction. And that Sunflower Movement then led to a election of local officials, uh, county magistrates and mayors in 2016 that was very favorable to the DPP. DPP won an overwhelming majority of those local positions. Um, there was a separate uh, case with uh, Taipei where Mr. Kerwinter uh, was elected mayor uh, as an independent, but he did so with the support of the DPP at that time. Uh, since then, he has kind of drifted off in China's direction himself. So there's not much love lost between the DPP and him. But mm -hmm. anyway, his start was made with DPP support. Mm -hmm. But that's green wave of 2016 event, uh, sorry, 2014, then led to the green wave of 2016 where President Tsai was uh, elected with an overwhelming majority and also with a legislative yuan that was uh, in which the DPP had the majority. So this was the first time in Taiwan's history where you had a president and a legislature uh, from uh, the DPP side at the same time. So that was uh, quite an achievement uh, at that point already.
So right. that's a little bit of the history of mm -hmm. uh, the DPP and Taiwan Communique. We continue to publish all those years um, until 2016 when I retired from my position at, uh, at FAPA. So at that point we also felt that we had published the publication 35 years and that Taiwan was now on the radar screen of the international community and that our efforts uh, in a sense had succeeded, our mission had been accomplished. Um, yeah, I would really like you to talk a little bit more about the Taiwan Communique because I, I've always thought that it was one of the very few, until recently, um, English language publications that really um, provided you know such a deep analysis um, about what was going on in Taiwan. There were very very few resources at the time in English uh, when Taiwan Communique came out. I don't know that there were many others that could compete with it. Um, could you talk a little bit about like um, how you formed it and like the different challenges and um, that you encountered? Yeah, sure. Um, so even before the Kaohsiung incident that I talked about earlier, uh, my wife and I felt that we should try to do something about human rights and democracy in Taiwan. And um, I had been part of the uh, of Amnesty International at the University of Washington, where I was studying. So then we decided in '78 to put out a newsletter, monthly newsletter about uh, human rights violations in Taiwan. So through our various sources we got information about people being imprisoned for their uh, political uh, for what they had said politically uh, for instance Chen Yu mm -hmm. who is now the secretary general of the president's office um, she was arrested already in 78 at one point and but due to a lot of international pressure uh, the Kuomintang uh, had to release her. And then, of course, after the Kaohsiung incident itself, she was one of the so-called Kaohsiung Eight, the eight major leaders arrested after the Kaohsiung incident. And she served, I think it was more than four years in prison. Um, so what we did with that initial publication is just focus on human rights, uh, but then after the Kaohsiung incident happened, we felt we should do it more on a uh, regular basis, give it an official name, and uh, Taiwan Communique was the name we did uh, choose. And after, so every two months uh, we sat down and we wrote down, uh, based on all the information we had gathered, um, reports from the prisons, uh, commentary on uh, what the Kuomintang was doing, commentary on what the United States was doing and not doing. Uh, 1980 was the year that the Reagan administration came into power. And at this point now, uh, everybody feels Mr. Reagan did quite a bit for Taiwan because of his six assurances. But at the time, Mr. Reagan was not very interested in human rights and democracy in Taiwan, and uh, there were no 
statements by any high-level people in his administration expressing concern about the political prisoners, about the uh, martial law, uh, and lack of human rights uh, by the Reagan administration. But in Congress, we had, um, through the Taiwanese community, led by Mr. Chen Tansan, who later became the foreign minister, uh, contacts with a number of people in the Congress, like Senator Ted Kennedy, Senator Claiborne Pell, Congressman Jim Leach, and Congressman Stephen Solarge. And those gang of four, as we called them at the time, uh, in Congress were very supportive of Taiwan, and every three months there was a hearing or they made some statements. So what we did in the Taiwan communique is we reported on those hearings, on those statements, giving them more uh, wider publicity. Uh, so we continued to do that through the early 80s uh, and also wrote about the uh, Danghuai magazines and which ones had been uh, confiscated, which one had been banned. And so the whole issue of lack of press freedom in Taiwan was something we focused on uh, very much. In addition to the reports that we got from the bad treatment in prison of the Danghuai leaders. So those issues were our main focus at that point in time. So that continued through the 80s until late 80s, early 90s. And then, of course, Lee Danghui pushed for his uh, uh, transition to democracy. And then we uh, refocused on well, the the um, the major developments in Taiwan at that time, the end of the martial law, the end of the national security law, end of Article 100, which was a particular law that prohibited uh, people to speak about independence. So anybody who spoke about independence could still be arrested mm -hmm. in 91, 92. So that was something that we, we wrote about in those days. And then from then on, of course, the uh, development of democracy, reporting on the um, elections that were held. So our communique from 1980 until 2016 is basically a chronology of Taiwan's transition to democracy. If you want to know what happened in February 1992, then go to the March issue of 1992 and you'll find the, um, the particular issues uh, discussed. So it really gives us, I think, a very unique insight into how Taiwan's transition of democracy took place, who were the major leaders, what were the major issues during those days. And I think at this point in time now, in 2020, we can hardly imagine how much less freedom there was in the 1980s in particular. And it wasn't until 91, 92 that suddenly there was this Taipei Spring uh, in which everything blossomed and people in Taiwan became much more open, free and expressive uh, of their uh, political ideas. So I think if people are interested in in the mechanisms, the workings, the details of Taiwan's transition 
true democracy, then our publication is probably the best source in English, of course, uh, about what happened uh, between uh, 1980 and 2016. Yeah, and uh, how did you even um, manage um, to collect and you know publish all this analysis and like what kind of resources it did, did it take to um, put out this publication and you know what kind of um, sources did you have to do all this? Well, in the beginning, it was, of course, very difficult because back in the late 70s, early 80s, you didn't have Internet and you didn't have email. So we were relegated to very traditional ways of communication, writing a letter or <laughs> making a phone call. Mm -hmm. So we had a number of contacts in Taiwan which did write, who uh, wrote us um, what was happening. So we have uh, sources in Taiwan directly who were uh, willing to to put that down on paper, and then we would um, we would either transcribe it uh, into English and then uh, publish it, or making phone calls. In particularly the period after the Kaohsiung incident was of course a very a tense period because the Kuomintang had arrested uh, so many of the key leaders of the democratic movement at that time, Mr. Shiming the Chen Ju Tsai Ing-wen, uh, sorry, uh, um, Lu Xiolian, uh, Yao Jiawen, uh, and and so on and so forth. Uh, and there were reports that uh, they could be executed even. So in the first few days after the Kaohsiung incident, we made a tremendous number of phone calls, uh, overseas calls, and back in those days, those were rather expensive, you mm -hmm. know, to call Taiwan mm -hmm. at that time. Right. You probably had to pay $10 a minute or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we had to make our phone calls very concise. Uh, but we did make so many phone calls that in one month after the Kaohsiung incident, my uh, monthly phone bill was more than $800. Wow. <laughs> while my monthly income from the university, I still remember, was $512. Oh I was goodness. a research assistant. Oh but goodness. fortunately, we had people in the Taiwanese community who were able, able and willing to support us. So through the Taiwanese community, we got funding for uh, both the operations, the phone calls and so on, and for publishing the communique. The first communique, we only had 40 uh, issues, but I collected uh, addresses from whoever wanted to give the address. Uh, news media, uh, people in Congress, uh, people in the State Department, and uh, and people in the academic community, and started to send out more and more communiques. So within just a year, we had grown significantly to uh, several hundred uh, issues, uh, several hundred copies per issue. Mm -hmm. So that continued to grow, and by the late 80s, I think I had a circulation of probably uh, close to 2,000 wow. in the United States mm -hmm. and about 600 in Europe. So what we try to do is reach key policy makers, decision makers, 
news media and inform them about what was happening in Taiwan. And over time that resulted in, I think, a larger group of people who were knowledgeable about uh, Taiwan. One of my uh, happiest moments or proudest moments was, uh, uh, I think in 2015 or 16, mm -hmm. I was at the seminar here in Washington at which Mr. Kurt Campbell spoke and he was the highest State Department official in charge of Asia. Mm -hmm. He was the uh, Assistant Secretary for East Asia and uh, Pacific. So he gave his talk about relations with China, etc., etc. And then uh, in the Q&A session, I stood up and said, well, I'm the editor of the Taiwan communique and I want to ask you the following question, etc. And then he started by saying, well, I first want to tell you how much we in our office have appreciated your publication. It really gave us invaluable insights into what was happening in Taiwan. Uh, and those insights uh, we really couldn't get uh, from any other source uh, but your publication. So I thought that was uh, quite a nice acknowledgement of a very high U.S. official of what we had been doing. Yeah, yeah, that's really incredible. I mean, it is a, a very, very long-lasting contribution and accomplishment, and it, and I think a lot of people don't may not know about it um, that mm. it still exists online. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you tell um, our listeners where people can find the Taiwan? Yeah, um, we have a website called www.taiwandc.org. And then um, it's a subpage of that, so slash um, TWCOM, Taiwan Communique, mm -hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you just go to TaiwanDC.org, you will see the little emblem in the upper right-hand corner, and there you can find all past issues of Taiwan Communique going back to, uh, to 1980. Yeah, I mean, it's just... For people who don't know about, you know, the whole transition from dictatorship to democracy that Taiwan has gone through, it's really hard to imagine, you know, what it was like at that time. Like, even just you saying how um, the how you got your sources by, you know, good old-fashioned letter writing and that it depended on whether people were even just willing to commit things to paper yep, right. at the time because it was, um, uh, you know, what were the consequences, you know, of that if somebody, you know, what, what yeah, actually, could you talk about what could be the consequences? Why would somebody be concerned about um, having a paper trail or writing this down, writing things like this too. Well, there was, at that point, and we are talking early 80s now, there was still very strict censorship um, and uh, a lot of letters that were sent were opened by the censors. Um, publications, uh, some of the Dang Wai magazines that were sent out, uh, we, we subscribed ourselves to a number of them. But sometimes you would find uh, one uh, with a page blacked out or a page torn out, obviously by the censors who didn't want this particular information uh, to get out. So, 
for people who uh, were sending us information, you know, there was at least some risk that uh, that their letter would be opened and that they would uh, uh, experience consequences of um, uh, of their writing. Uh, we were able, that's one other uh, interesting story, we were able to go to Taiwan in 1984, mm -hmm. at which there were uh, some very local elections which we attended. And then in 1986, which were also partial elections for the Legislative Yuan, for only a limited number of seats uh, for representatives from Taiwan, against the background of the large majority still representing uh, all of China, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. in both those elections we were able to uh, to go around and we went uh, to a election rally of Mr. Yo Jing, who was uh, at that time a, a candidate for the Li Fai Yuan in, uh, in um, in Taipei County in uh, Panjiao and he was an old friend of us we had known him before so we went to the rally and I wanted to take a picture of him with the crowd in the background it was this huge crowd you know mm -hmm. 10 15,000 mm -hmm. people listening to him explaining the situation of the legal status of Taiwan I still remember uh, he was a legal scholar Mm -hmm. So I wanted to take this picture, so with one foot I stepped on the stage and took the picture and everybody started applauding. And hey, so he was wondering why is everybody applauding, <laughs> I mean, in the middle of this very serious lecture, you know, and then he looked uh, to his side and he saw me and he recognized me and said, oh, my friend from the Netherlands come here on the stage and he introduced me to the crowd, so I bowed a couple times and then went off stage again. The next day, I was called into the government information office, and the head of the government uh, information office berated me and said, you are interfering in the internal affairs of the Republic of China. You appeared on the stage with a opposition candidate. That is not allowed. Oh, wow. So that was a pretty serious warning. And then we... Uh, felt the consequences later. They basically put us on the blacklist. And oh. from 1986 until 1992, we were not allowed to go back uh, to Taiwan. So even even oh, my wow. wife, Mei Jin, was not allowed to go back for the funeral of her grandmother. Oh, we we mm -hmm. applied for that, you know, mm -hmm. and we said, no, no, it's not convenient for you to go back to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So I told them, I can decide myself if it's convenient for me mm. or not, you know, but right. that's, that's the way they presented it. It's wow. totally ridiculous. Wow. Wow. But then suddenly in 1992, the blacklist was rescinded and uh, we were able to go uh, to Taiwan again. But mm. it wasn't only, a, it wasn't until 1992, you know, Li yeah. Tongkwei had been in mm -hmm. power for at least mm -hmm. three years at wow. that point in time. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult for him to to reorient the ship of state and to basically rein in those security agencies that had been uh, had been playing the main fiddle until that point in time. Wow. 
Yeah, it's 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 pretty remarkable also just to think that the Taiwan communique was um you know, your operations were not in Taiwan like in the US and you had to gather all this data um from a distance to at that yeah. time like you said without the internet. Um yeah, very interesting. Um and do you do you have a legal background or um people that were working <laughs> on the Taiwan communique because there is a lot of analysis about um you know different um things in the legal system that were happening like you um I'm sure like different um uh what do you call them like regulations and things that would be ch um challenged or changed yeah I no, mean, it's amazing to I keep track to of all that other people for the legal uh -huh. stuff and uh -huh. actually um, and I got my original training in aerospace engineering oh wow so I always joke with people that I'm a real rocket scientist <laughs> in my earlier years I did work on on rockets actually <laughs> and wow. Even during my work in the Dutch government, I was involved in the European uh, space program, uh, which involved uh, uh, rockets, of course, too. But uh, I basically got involved in Taiwan stuff from the perspective of human rights. Uh, I'm a Dutchman, so in mm -hmm. the Netherlands, we feel if we see some injustice, mm -hmm. we want to change it, and that's mm -hmm. basically ingrained into uh, society, because we are a small country in between these big countries, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. have to come up for your own rights and you have to defend your own rights. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the basic essence of of, of the way I grew up and uh, when uh, I got involved in Taiwan uh, things, uh, we try to continue that in our own way. Yeah, there's some parallels between you know Taiwan also being a small country, you know, yeah. facing um, its own challenges with China and other neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so now you're teaching the history of Taiwan at um, George Mason. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like that's quite unusual. I don't think there's that many colleges or universities that actually have like Taiwan studies, not to mention history of Taiwan courses. Yeah, right. So actually when I was um, publishing Taiwan Communique, I of course also got uh, to read a lot of uh, historical books, uh, Peng Moments, Formosa mm -hmm. Betrayed, mm -hmm. sorry, uh, uh, George Kurz, Formosa Betrayed, and permanence a taste of freedom. Mm -hmm. So I got more and more interested in the history of uh, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, to some extent, because of the Dutch angle, uh, the Dutch were there as a colonial power from 1624 till 1662. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of information on the Dutch historical period because all those Dutch governors and captains, they had to write a, um, a diary about what happened this day and what mm -hmm. happened the next day. Mm -hmm. So in The Hague, in the Netherlands, there's a tremendous library of all of those uh, historical works about Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, uh, in the Netherlands, we have a tremendous resource 
uh, an insight into what Taiwan society mm, was like right. 400 years ago. So I got more and more interested in that. And when I uh, set up the Taiwan DC website, I also wanted to do a little history page. And so I wrote up a little history of Taiwan and that expanded and expanded. So, um, so I got got more and more interested in the topic of Taiwan's uh, history. And then in, uh, when I was working at FAPA from 2005 to 2016, about halfway through there, um, the George Mason University had started a, uh, a history of Taiwan course that was first taught by Professor Chen Wenyan the former president of FAPA, and then by Mike Fonte, mm -hmm. who is now still the director of the DPP office in mm -hmm. Washington. Mm -hmm. But in 2011, Mike uh, said, well, next year I'll be too busy because President Tsai will be uh, elected as president in 2012. Uh, so he, he, he thought he would be rather busy, but of course he did not um, win in that election, uh, but lost by not too large a margin. So, but anyway, I had taken over the uh, the course from Mike Fonte, and I really enjoyed it. So, basically, it's a pretty unique opportunity to uh, get young people in this country familiar with the history of Taiwan. That there is something before 1949. Uh, so many people, when they make an analysis of Taiwan and China relations, they only go back to 1949 when uh, Chiang Kai-shek split from China and uh, went went to Taiwan. Nobody mm -hmm. really knew very much about that there was a Taiwan before 1949. So that's what I'm mainly focusing on in my uh, course basically start with the original Aborigines 5,000 years ago, mm -hmm. how they started to fan out over the Pacific Ocean and how they became the original inhabitants of many of the islands in the, in the Pacific. Then going to the Dutch period and then the Tsinsengong period, mm -hmm. uh, which were really, the Dutch period was really at the beginning of Taiwan's modern history because we have records from that time from before 1624 there are hardly any records of what was happening where and when and how but after 1624 mm -hmm. we do have pretty detailed records of life in taiwan mm -hmm. and what happened uh, where and how so and then of course moving through the Tsinsengong period the qing dynasty uh, the Formosa Republic of 19, uh, 1895, which many people don't know too much about either. That there was a period for six, five, six months where Taiwan had declared itself an uh, independent republic, but was not able to withstand the pressure from, uh, from Japan. Then, of course, the Japanese period, which initially was a pretty unpleasant period because the Japanese had one military expedition after another to subdue the Taiwanese. But then the second part was pretty positive because Japan tried to make Taiwan a model colony 
in which there was adequate health care, in which there were infrastructure projects, etc., education, etc., etc. So for many of the older people in Taiwan who grew up during the Japanese period, that was a very positive period. Certainly if they compare it to the um, uh, time that came after that, when Chiang Kai-shek came in, that was a very repressive and unpleasant period. So that is the Taiwanese heritage that basically led to the democratization that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. and that was the basis for the very democratic and vibrant system that we do have in Taiwan uh, right now. Yeah, yeah, incredible to think about, uh, you know, the path that Taiwan has taken up to this point. And now we have um, majority, like DPP majority um, parliament too. So it yeah. gives a lot of uh, possibilities to move forward. Great. So, um, yeah, I'd like to thank you so much for your time um, and okay, this, you. all this information. I've been speaking with Gerrit van der Wees about the Taiwan Communique, a publication dedicated to the promotion of Taiwan's human rights and democracy. For over 30 years, from 1980 to 2016, the Taiwan Communique was an advocate for Taiwan and remains available online. You can read all of the issues of the Taiwan Communique at www.taiwandc.org forward slash TWCOM. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and give us a review. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lee. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.